Let's open our Bibles together to Mark 16, the last chapter in the Gospel of Mark. We come to the final two verses this morning. Mark 16. Mark 16, 19, and 20. So then, the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. What is Jesus doing now? That's a question we don't often ask ourselves. Since his triumphant work on the cross is finished, we tend to think that all of his work is complete, but it is not. Yes, the sin-atoning work of the Lord Jesus is finished. That is complete. Yes, his sacrificial work as the Lamb of God is finished. That is complete. And yes, he showed the love of God for sinners by dying for our sin, by dying in our place and rising from the grave. But where did he go and what is he doing now? We don't think much about that. We tend to think of the work of the Lord Jesus only in the past, what he did for us. And that is supremely important because our salvation would not exist if it were not for that past work. But what is he doing now? I mean, he rose from the dead. He's alive. He's doing something. He's working on our behalf. And these last two verses of the Gospel of Mark inform us that uh, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ form the core of the gospel message, the core historical facts of the gospel message, that which we must believe in order to be saved, that which speaks of his work in saving us from our sin. But the ascension of Jesus Christ is worthy of our attention as well. It is another step in the exaltation of the Son of God because the ascension of Jesus teaches us that Jesus returned to glory. He returned to that place where he was before he humbled himself by becoming a man. You may remember from past messages, how we've talked about the humility of the Lord Jesus Christ, his humility of mind, which caused him then to take on human flesh, how he humbled himself even to the point of death, the most humiliating form of death in his day, which was crucifixion. He was buried. Three days later, he rose from the dead. And then for 40 days between the resurrection and the ascension, he appeared countless times to his disciples. And then, Scripture says, he returned. He returned bodily into heaven. And that's where he is right now. He is at the right hand of God. Well, what does that mean? 
When Mark says, he sat down at the right hand of God. Well, what is the right hand of God? Well, it's a position of authority and a position of power. For example, Jesus makes this really clear in Matthew 26 when he is on trial uh, before the high priest Caiaphas. The high priest says to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven or coming on the clouds of heaven. Peter and the apostles preached in Acts chapter 5 that Jesus is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior. So the right hand of God is a position of power and a position of authority. Uh, Peter makes this really clear in his first letter in 1 Peter 3.22 where he speaks of Jesus as being at the right hand of God. Then he goes on to say, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. So it speaks of the power and the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Jesus ascended as Lord, and he now reigns as Lord, and he exercises his lordship over his church. In light of that, God wants you to respond to the Lord Jesus in two ways. Number one, call out to Jesus who intercedes for us as the high priest and head of the church. He's at the right hand of God, and so he is in a position of power and authority. And so we should call out to him. He is the Lord Jesus. He intercedes for us. He is the high priest and head of the church. The Lord Jesus, it says, after he had spoken to them. So after he gave the commission to the disciples here in Mark and the commission we looked at last week, in the Gospel of Matthew, then he was taken up into heaven. So he was received by the Father. Why? Because his work was complete. His sacrificial work was complete. He was not only the sacrifice for our sins, but he was also the priest. He offered himself as the Lamb of God, and he now sits at the Father's right hand. So the ascension proclaims the truth that the cross was the full payment for our sin. There is no more payment to be made. We do not pay for our own sins. We can never pay for our own sins. And then when we come to faith in Jesus as our Savior and Lord, we then relinquish our efforts at paying for our sins. Some of us were raised in religions that taught us that Jesus started the work of salvation, but we have to finish it. We finish it through our good works. And, and when we sin, then God punishes us, and we have to pay for our sins. That is contrary to the gospel. That's contrary to the scriptures. The punishment for sin has already been paid. There may be consequences that you and I continue to suffer because of our sins. 
But that is very different than punishment that Jesus has already paid for. Well, let's turn to the book of Hebrews because I want to do somewhat of a brief flyover there of the role of the Lord Jesus as our high priest and the significance of this statement that he sat down at the right hand of God. So turn with me, beginning in the first chapter of the book of Hebrews. We're going to just jump to about half a dozen uh, passages here in the book of Hebrews because no other book in the New Testament exalts the Lord Jesus as high priest to the degree that Hebrews does. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3. Speaking of the Lord Jesus, says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds, notice that's present tense, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Scientists wonder, how is the world held together? Jesus holds it together, okay? The Bible tells us how it's held together. It's held together by the Lord Jesus Christ. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. If he would cease to uphold the universe by the word of his power, we would vanish. Now he goes on. After making purification for sins, that refers to what? The cross... So after he made purification for sins, what did he do? He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So as the writer is about to write this this long letter to these Hebrew believers, lifting up Jesus as being better than anything they've ever seen before, better than anything they saw in the Old Testament, better than angels, better than Joshua, better than Moses, better than the Old Covenant, better than the sacrificial law, better than all the priests, he declares that Jesus is right now seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. Well, what's he doing? He's acting as our high priest. Look at chapter 4. Hebrews 4 and verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest. So he's just talked about Jesus being the great high priest. He is the living word of God who has given us his written word and his written word speaks deeply into the issues of our hearts, deeper than any other philosophy or idea can go. It is the word of God by the power of the spirit of God. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. What's that? That's the ascension because as we saw in last week in Acts chapter 1, Jesus ascended through the clouds into heaven. Okay? So he has passed through the heavens, through the atmosphere. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Well, what confession? This confession. The confession about who he is as our high priest. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. 
So the Lord Jesus is superior to all of the priests that went before him because he alone is sinless. He understands our weaknesses. He understands the weakness of human flesh. He was tempted in all of the ways that we're tempted, and yet he never sinned. Therefore, let us then, that's what it's saying, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We may be confident to call upon the Lord to meet us in our time of need, to give us grace, to give us mercy when we need grace when we need mercy, when we find ourselves overcome by human weakness and our struggle against sin, we may find a sympathetic Savior in Jesus and a priest who fully understands us. Look at Hebrews 7. Hebrews chapter 7. Talking about how Jesus is superior to the Old Testament priests, And his covenant, the new covenant that he brought about through his blood is superior to every other covenant that came before him. It says in verse 23 of Hebrews 7, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. That's pretty simple to understand, right? The reason why they needed so many priests in the Old Testament is because they were dying off because they were not immune to death or they were not victorious over death. They were not Lord of life and Lord of death like Jesus is. But he, who's he? Jesus that he's been talking about. He holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. He lives forever. He's at the right hand of God. He is seated there. He ever lives to work on our behalf. Consequently, or as a result, he is able, verse 25, to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So seated at the right hand of God, this place of power and authority, is the Lord Jesus Christ who has not only saved us, but he is keeping us saved. Do you understand that? Jesus did not only save you in the past when you came to faith, when you came to repentance and faith in Jesus, but he is keeping you saved. He is saving you to the uttermost. This is the security that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And what makes it possible? The very fact that he is still alive seated at the right hand of God where he ever lives to do what? To make intercession for us, to be our mediator. Chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent 
that the Lord set up, not man. So there was a high priest in the tent in the Old Testament, the tabernacle, which later then became the temple. We have a better high priest who is right now dwelling in a better tent, the very presence of God. And what is he doing there? He is ministering. Who is he ministering for? For us. He's a minister in the holy places. He's performing his work as the high priest, as the one who is ever living to always make intercession for us. Chapter 10. <clears throat> Chapter 10, verses 11 through 14. Again, in contrast to the Old Testament priests, the priests of the Old Covenant, and in contrast to the blood of bulls and goats. So remember, Jesus was the sacrifice and the priest, both. Verse 11, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Jesus, or when Christ, had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, Calvary, the cross, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The Lord Jesus Christ is the high priest who is seated at the right hand of God. He ever lives to intercede for us. And notice how superior his sacrifice on the cross was. The Old Testament sacrifices over and over and over and over repeatedly for the same sins and they could not be fully forgiven. Only full forgiveness comes in the Messiah, the work of the one and only final sacrifice of which all of those sacrifices were a picture. They were a shadow. And then finally, chapter 12. The writer here has lifted up numerous examples of men and women in chapter 11. Men and women of the past who walked by faith, walked by the obedience of faith in God's promises. The writer then says in 12.1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. But this is not a race of self-effort. This is not a race of moralism. This is not a race of picking yourself up by your bootstraps. This is not a race of human willpower. This is a race that we run. How? 
by looking, verse 2, to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. While we run the Christian race, we exert effort in obedience to God's word, empowered by the Holy Spirit, but we must be looking to Jesus who started the work and he is the one who's going to finish it. That's where our hope and our encouragement and the fuel we need to run the Christian race comes from. The very fact that he is still working for us. He's still working on our behalf. He is the high priest. That is where he ascended. He ascended to that role at the right hand of God. But he is also head of the church. He's also head of the church. That's another role that he performs, you might say, while he is seated at the right hand of God. For example, in John's Revelation, which uh, later became known as the book of the Revelation, he sees Jesus as the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. And John tells us the seven stars are the seven churches that Jesus writes these letters to. So clearly, it's a picture of his headship over the church. Well, turn to Ephesians chapter 1. What does that mean? What does that mean that Jesus is the head of the church? Well, it means that Jesus is exercising his power and authority over the church. We are the church. We are the bride of Christ. Believers in Jesus are the bride of Christ, and he is the head of the church. Ephesians chapter 1 talks about the glorious work of God in saving us, both all, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, all three involved in our salvation. And then the chapter ends with this uh, prayer that the apostle uh, prays for the Ephesians. But pick it up in verse 20. We're speaking of how God worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. There are so many ramifications to this reality that Jesus is the head of the church. He has power and authority over the church. No man is the head of the church of Jesus Christ. Only Christ is the head of the church. How does he rule his church? He rules his church through the scepter of his word. That's why we must pay close attention to his word. Because that's how Jesus is ruling in his church. It is through the authority of scripture. Look at Colossians. Turn to to the right in your Bible. Two more letters, Colossians chapter 
1, Paul is lifting up the Lord Jesus as the creator, which then leads to this declaration of his preeminence over the church. Colossians 1, verse 17, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. We already saw that in Hebrews 1. In him, in Christ, all things are being held together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be what? Preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was, to, was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Paul teaches us in Philippians 2 that the reward to Jesus for his self-humiliation is his future exaltation. Because he was willing to humble himself, he will be exalted someday and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And so in the meantime, in the church, he is to be preeminent. That's what Paul's teaching us here. Christ is to be preeminent in our worship. Christ is to be preeminent in the life of our church. Christ is to be preeminent in our relationships with one another and how we edify one another in the Lord. Jesus is to be lifted up. He is at that place, at the right hand of God with authority and power. So the ascension of the Lord Jesus should give to us great confidence. Confidence that he is building his church. Why could he say that the gates of hell would not prevail against it? Because, as Paul says in Colossians, he has authority over all of these other spiritual powers all the powers and authorities in the spiritual realm Jesus has authority over and that's why we can be confident that he will do his work this confidence is what led Paul to write these incredible words of hope and ultimate victory at the end of Romans 8 where he says who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who is the one who answers all of the charges against us? the one who has power and authority to do so, the one who sits at God's right hand. So rest assured, be confident in this Lord, this Savior, who is seated at the right hand of God. He knows your every need. He knows your every struggle. He knows the weakness of humanity. 
He is doing his work for us, even now. He's praying for us. Robert Murray McShane, while meditating on this truth, came to this conclusion. If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. If you could hear Christ praying for you in the next room, what would that do for you? What would that do for your faith, your confidence, your inner resolve to keep following him? He is praying for you. He is your high priest and the head of the church. Well, there's a second way that God wants you to respond this morning. And that is to cooperate with the Lord Jesus who builds his church, working with us by the power of his spirit. Just go briefly back to the end of Mark and notice this, this really encouraging phrase in verse 20. They went out and preached everywhere, and then I circled the next word in my Bible, while the Lord worked with them. That is amazing. Jesus commissioned us to go and to make disciples of all the nations. But he didn't say, okay, well, my work's done now. The rest is on you. He is working with us. It is his presence as Matthew's commission. Matthew's account of the commission reminded us of last week. That promise that Jesus says, I will be with you forever. His presence assures us that he is working with us. Well, how is he doing that? He's at the right hand of God. How is he present working with us? By his spirit. He promised that when he ascended to heaven, he would send his spirit. This is a promise that he made to the disciples. Well, let's look at Luke's commission this morning. We already spent a good deal of time last week on Matthew's uh, version or his account of the Great Commission. Look at the end of the Gospel of Luke and notice this second uh, account of the same commission that the Lord Jesus gave to his disciples. Now, the setting is the resurrected Jesus is having breakfast with the disciples on the beach, all right? On the Sea of Galilee. What an amazing breakfast that must have been to be with the Lord Jesus. And then it says, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. 
Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you. What's what's that promise? That's the promise that he would send his Spirit. The Father promised to send the Spirit. The Son promised to send the Spirit. But stay in the, in the city, this is Acts 1, stay in Jerusalem until he comes, until the Holy Spirit comes, until you are clothed with power from on high. Then, verse 50, he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him. And returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Now, do you see a difference between how the disciples respond here when Jesus is taken away and when they responded, or how they responded in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was taken away? What's the difference? The difference is the, pro- the promise of the power of of the Holy Spirit. The difference is this time they believed too as well. They believed his word. And so instead of crumbling in fear and grief, they worshiped him with what great joy. And they stayed in the temple blessing God. They understood that the that the Lord Jesus, the ascended Lord Jesus, would indeed keep his promise and work with them and through them by the Holy Spirit whom he promised to send. Well, turn to the book of Acts. We already looked at Acts 2 last week, so we won't do that again. But Acts 4, I want you to see one of the enduring ways the Holy Spirit continues to empower us as witnesses for him. Peter and John are before the council in Acts chapter 4. They're preaching the gospel. The governing authorities call them into uh, their courtroom, so to speak, and say, you've got to stop preaching. You can't do this anymore. And they understand in their heart that they must obey the Lord Jesus, who is the head of the church, not the political authorities, who are not the head of the church. And so they say, well, we have to keep preaching the gospel. We have to obey the Lord and not men. And so Acts 4 and verse 13 says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, when these authorities saw how bold Peter and John were, and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Please notice, it was not the high level of education that the apostles had that impressed people. It was not their ability to speak fluently all the time. That was not what impressed the opponents of the gospel. What blew the the opponents of the gospel away 
was the sense in which these men were in the very presence of Jesus. That there was something about these men and their character and the way they spoke that people knew they had been with Jesus. When people hear you speak biblical truth, is that the conclusion they come to? Is that the conclusion they come to about you? Is that the conclusion they come to about me? The Holy Spirit is the one who caused these men to be the witnesses that they were and to, to cause people who hated the gospel to sense even though they hated this message that was being preached, there was something about the messenger they could not explain away. These were people who had been changed by being with Jesus. Wow. What a witness. You see this again later in the uh, chapter, verse 31. When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with what? Boldness. It was the Spirit of God who gave them the strength to continue to speak forth the gospel, declare to the world who Jesus is. That same Spirit of God lives within every one of us who is a believer in Jesus Christ. Jesus is doing his work with us, through us, by the power of his Spirit. Clearly, uh, this is a commission that we have to take seriously. It's a commission that we have to rest peacefully in the power of God to perform. So there's that, there's that tension in our hearts. We want to take the gospel to the world. We ought to. We better. We want all of Mayfield Heights to hear. We want all of Cleveland to hear. We want all of Ohio to hear. We want all of the United States to hear. We want the whole world to hear. To hear the gospel. And yet we know at the very core of our being that the change of heart and the transformation of life that God desires is something we cannot accomplish. We are powerless to perform those changes. We are the messengers. We are the delivery people. God is the one who does the work. What incredible encouragement that ought to give to us. And that is all because the Lord Jesus is ascended to the right hand of God. He is working for us. 
and he has promised to return someday and take us to be with him where he is now. What a great confidence that gives to us and what great comfort that gives to us. Let me give you a few wrap-up thoughts here. Since Jesus is building his church through us, we can be confident. We can be confident in his spirit to do the heart-changing, life-transforming work that we are powerless to accomplish. The spirit of God can do it through his word. Since Jesus is the head of the church, we must obey his word. He rules his church with the scepter of his word. And so we don't need man-centered, pragmatic approaches to doing church. We just need to stick with the word. And God will do his work. He's proven that to us year after year after year, and he continues to prove it to us. And since Jesus is our high priest, we may approach the throne of God with confidence. Whatever you're struggling with, whatever form of human weakness or temptation to sin you are struggling with, know that you can run to the throne of grace and Jesus is there waiting for you and he will pray with you. He is praying for you. There's a collection of Puritan prayers called the Valley of Vision. And you might be familiar with it, but in that um, prayer book, there's a prayer entitled Christ Alone. And it's a beautiful example of the preeminence that Christ should have in our lives and in his church. I want to make that our prayer this morning, so let's pray. Oh God, your main plan and the end of your will is to make Christ glorious and beloved in heaven, where he is now ascended, where one day all the elect will behold his glory and love and glorify him forever. Though here we love him but little, May this be our portion at last. In this world, you have given us a beginning. One day it will be perfected in heaven above. You have helped us to see and know Christ, though obscurely, to take him, to receive him, to possess him, to love him, to bless him in our heart mouths and life. Let us study and stand for discipline in all the ways of worship out of love for Christ and to show our thankfulness to seek and to know your will from love to hold it in love and to daily care for and keep this state of heart you have led us to place 
all nature and happiness in oneness with Christ, in having heart and mind centered only on him, in being like him, in communicating good to others. This is our heaven on earth. But we need the force, energy, impulses of your spirit to carry us on the way to our heavenly Jerusalem. Here it is our duty to be as Christ in this world, to do what he would do, to live as he would live, to walk in love and meekness. Then would he be known, and then would we have peace in death. God, this is our prayer this morning. We long to see Christ exalted in our lives. We long that others may look at us and say, I don't understand. I don't agree. But one thing I do know is I can't deny how this person, these people, glow with the very presence of Jesus as people who have been with him and have been changed by him. Oh God, make us like this, we pray. We thank you for our Lord Jesus who is seated at the right hand of God in all authority and power who continues to work for us. May our lives glorify him, we pray. Amen.